this time the children may be dismissed and if there are any parents who want to go with them to Children's Church. Thank you so much. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Money has been called the substance that buys us everything but happiness and takes us everywhere but heaven. Money can buy a huge house but it can't buy a home. Money can buy a magnificent bed, but it can't buy peaceful sleep. Money can buy companions, but it can't buy friends. Money can buy a gold-plated crucifix, but it can't buy a savior. Money can't buy what really matters in life. But that's not to say that money is bad. Money is necessary. What matters is our attitude toward money and how we use money. What's the wrong attitude toward money and the wrong use of money? I was in the gym this week, and a fellow was there talking about this Steve McNair situation and how his mistress shot him and killed him and killed herself, and he was trying to figure out how that logically made any sense, and so he was talking, and he said, it's kind of like the Bible says, the love of women is the root of all evil. (laughs) And a fellow there turned to me and said, what do you think of that, pastor? (laughs) And I said, well, There's some truth to that. If you're going to love multiple women, you're going to have a whole root of problems. But the Bible doesn't really say that. The Bible says it's the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with money, but to love money is wrong. Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. Nothing intrinsically wrong with money, but you're not to worship it. You're not to serve it. You're not to live for it. The 10th commandment is the one that gets us. Sometimes we go through and think we're doing pretty well, and we get to the 10th commandment, and it says, you shall not covet, and it gets us all because that's the desire, the longing for more. And we live in a society that panders covetousness, that constantly tells us you've got to have it You deserve it. It's new and improved. That cell phone from last year, even though it's working fine, well, you need the better one. You need to upgrade. You need something more. Covetousness is an ugly sin with ugly consequences. Achan coveted, and it cost Israel a battle, and it cost him his life. Balaam sold his allegiance to Israel for money. Delilah turned against Samson for money. Elijah's servant 
Gehaza coveted money and received Naaman's leprosy. Ananias and Sapphira coveted money and lost their lives. Judas sold his Savior for money. 1 Timothy 6.9 says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. There are serious consequences when we have an improper attitude toward money and use it the wrong way. You say, well, what's the right attitude in use of money? Well, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. There can be great blessing in the way you use money. We're to view it as a stewardship from God that we are to use to meet the needs of other people. Money is something we have, and we are to be givers of money. And when we are givers of money, Jesus says we will be blessed. In fact, did you know that the way you use your money is an indication of the reality of your faith? If you talk a lot about your faith and yet your checkbook doesn't indicate that you're giving to meet the needs of others, that you're giving to the Lord, then there's a big question mark about your faith. John said it this way in 1 John 3, 17, Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see, our attitude toward money and how we use money is important to God. We are to be givers. And Paul is going to talk about that subject in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians in the first four verses. Notice how he begins. He says, now concerning the collection. If you've been with us through our study through 1 Corinthians, uh, somebody told me recently you would have had to start out in the nursery But Paul is addressing issues, problems in this church. Chapter 1, verse 11 says some of these problems he learned through the family of Chloe, and he talks about those problems in the first six chapters. And then he switches in chapter 7, and he begins to talk about issues that they had written him about and asked about. And he begins that chapter, chapter 7, verse 1, with these words, Now concerning the things about which you wrote... And he keeps using that phrase, now concerning, now concerning, because he's dealing with the issues. Chapter 7, verse 1, it was marriage. Chapter 7, verse 25, it was single people. Chapter 8, verse 1, meat offered to idols. Chapter 12, verse 1, spiritual gifts. Chapter 15 was all about the resurrection. And now in chapter 16, he says, now concerning giving, the final issue they wanted to know about. And so he's going to give us in these first four verses what I see is seven principles about giving today. And you can follow along in the outline. The first is the purpose. What's the purpose of giving? Notice what he says in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so do you also. It's the collection for the saints. In chapter 15 and verse 26 of Romans, we're told that this was a collection that was being taken for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the mother 
church, but they had been through some hard times. Chapter 8 and verse 1 says there was a great persecution in that church. And chapter 11 of Acts and verse 28 tells us there was a great famine in Jerusalem. So they had persecution from people, and they had a natural disaster that happened. They had famine. And so there were needy people in the home church, the mother church in Jerusalem. And so Paul was taking a collection from among the Gentile churches to meet that need. That was the purpose. It was for the saints. And that's the same purpose for our giving today. Our giving today is for the saints. Two kinds of saints. Those in need and those who lead. First of all, those in need. First Timothy 5 tells us there was a list of widows in the early church that the church provided for their needs. Acts chapter 2 and verse 45 tells us about the early church, and it says, And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Acts chapter 4 and verse 34 and 35 says, There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each one as any had need. So they gave to meet the needs of the saints. And then secondly, there were saints who lead. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. You say, what's double honor? Does that mean two slaps on the shoulder? No. The next verse says... For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. What is double honor? It's providing financially for those who lead, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. 1 Corinthians 9, 14 puts it this way. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So the purpose of giving is to help meet the physical needs of the saints, and to support those who help meet the spiritual needs of the saints. That's the purpose. Second is the pattern. Notice verse 2. On the first day of of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Notice that phrase, on the first day of every week. What's the pattern of giving? It's to be weekly, it's to be regular, it's to be systematic. It's something you're to do week by week by week. Not just on the spur of the moment, it's something that is planned. I have a regular time to wash my face. I have a regular time to shave, and I have a lot more shaving to do than most of you. I have a regular time to eat. I have a regular time to dress. I have a regular time to brush my teeth. I don't have a regular time to wash my car. You know what? It shows up. It's the same with giving. If we don't have a regular time to give, then it probably gets neglected. What's the pattern for giving? On the first day of every week. Our giving is not to be haphazard. It's to be systematic. It's something we do week by week by week on the first day of the week. That's the pattern. 
than the place. Look at verse 2 again. Each of you is to put aside and save. The NIV says you're to set aside a sum of money. Literally, it says you are to store it up. Now, there are two possible interpretations for this. One would be that you have a private personal account at home. The other is that the store is the local church. I take the second approach that he's talking about the local church. Let me give you some reasons. Number one, because the practice of the early church, as we saw in the verse I read, Acts 4.35, was to bring it to the leaders of the church, lay it at their feet, and they distributed it to those in need. The church acted as the central distribution point. They brought it to the leaders of the church, then it was distributed to the people. Secondly, Paul says, I want you to do it on the first day of the week so that when I come, there will be no collections. Now, if everybody's collecting at home and Paul comes, what's the first thing they're going to have to do? Take a collection. So he says, I want you to collect it so that we don't have to have a collection when I get there, and the only way to do that would be to bring it to the local church. And then my third reason is real obvious, and that is it says you're to do it on the first day of the week. Now, if you were collecting at home, why would you do it on the first day of the week? Doesn't make any sense. What's the first day of the week? That's the day. That's Sunday. That's the day the church gathered together. So on the first day of the week, when you gather together, you're to store up this collection for the needs of the saints so that when Paul comes, they could give it to Paul to go to the church in Jerusalem. You say, well, does that mean that we're to only give to the local church and never give directly to meet the needs of other people? No. Otherwise, 1 John 3.17 would say, when you see your brother in need, you're to tell him, well, I hope the church will help you. What are you to do? You're to help that individual. You're to meet that need when you see it. And so you're to be giving to the local church, but you're also to be giving as God leads you to meet the needs of other people directly. In fact, I think it's a great idea to have a collection in your home where you set aside money. I've seen people and they got a jar and they say, well, that's our jar for our vacation or something. Wouldn't it be nice to have a jar that you have and you collect as a family and you use that to meet the needs of other people when you find out about them? Or you hear about a missionary in need and you can take money out of your collection at home and meet that need or an organization that needs something and you can give. That's a great idea to have that money stored up at home, ready to meet the needs of other people when they arise. But primarily, the place that we're to give is the local church. Fourth, the participants. Who are the participants in giving? Look at verse 2. You see the phrase? Each one of you. In Greek, that means each one of you. Who is to be giving? Everyone is to be giving. You say, well, Dan, I give my talent so I don't have to give money. No, everyone is to give money. You say, well, I'm too poor to give. Listen, if you have anything, then you have something to give. In Mark chapter 12, 
Jesus stood by the treasury and he watched people put money in the treasury. And who came by? A poor widow. And what did she give? She gave 100% of what she had. The Bible tells us she gave two copper coins and it was all that she had. And Jesus said she gave more than anybody else that day. If you've got anything, you've got something to give. And our tendency in this area is always, if I had more, I'd give. The way we justify this is we say, if I ever get rich, then I'll start giving to the Lord. But right now, things are a little difficult, and so I can't. It's like the pastor who was talking to the farmer, and he said, if you had two farms, would you give one to the Lord? He said, well, yes, I would. He said, if you had two fields, would you give one to the Lord? Sure, I would. He said, if you had two pigs, would you give one to the Lord? And he said, now, wait a minute, you know I have two pigs. We like to live in the hypothetical. If I ever get rich, if I ever win the lottery, if I ever inherit a million dollars, I'm going to do this with it. I'm going to give it to the Lord. Jesus said something about that in Luke 16.10. You know what he said? He said, he who is faithful in the little things will be faithful in much. If you're not faithful with a little money, guess what? If you ever get a lot, you're not going to be faithful with a lot. Whatever principles you have built in with the little things in your life will be reflected when you have the big things arise. If you can't trust God when you're poor, you're not going to trust him when you're rich. God wants us all to give, no matter what our economic situation is is. No one is excluded. 2 Corinthians 8.2 says of the Macedonians, their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Their deep poverty overflowed in their giving. They didn't have a lot, but they were givers. Giving is to be done by everyone. And I might say to you parents, you need to instill this value in your children even when they're little, to teach them to be giving to the Lord because at that age, they're learning a principle that needs to be carried with them throughout their lives. Fifth is the proportion. Notice verse 2 again. He says, you're to give as you may prosper. Now, how much should you give to the Lord? Well, most people would say you're to give a tenth. You're to to tithe to the Lord. That's the word tithe means tenth. Where does that come from? Well, that, that comes from the Old Testament law. That's a law given to Israel that they were to give a tenth to the Lord. And those who make that argument that you're to give a tenth base that not only on the fact that it's written in the law, but that it's done before the law, that people before the law was given gave a tenth, therefore that's a universal principle, we should all give a tenth. You know, if you go back before Moses, you can find two examples of giving a tenth. One is Abram, when he conquered the kings that were coming against Sodom, 
And he came, and you remember King Mel, what was his name? Can you say it? Melchizedek came out, and he gave him a tenth of all the spoils. The other is Jacob. You remember when he had the vision with the ladder going up to heaven, and, and he, he laid down and took a little nap on a rock, and he had that vision, and he woke up, and he made an interesting vow to the Lord. He said, if you'll keep me safe and bring me back safely, then I'll let you be my God, and I'll give you 10% of everything you bless me with. Those are the only two examples of a tenth before the law. The only other time I can find a percentage is in uh, Genesis chapter 41 where uh, Daniel, I'm sorry, let me get my men right, Joseph was over Egypt and he said there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine and so he asked them to give 20% during the years of plenty so that they could store it up for the years of famine. When you come to the time of Moses, Leviticus 27 says they were to give a tenth to the Levites and priests. Deuteronomy 12 says they were to give another tenth to fund the national holidays and feasts. And Deuteronomy 14 says they were to give another tenth every third year for the poor. So if you really want to get strict about this, Israel really didn't give 10%. I'm bad at math, but that would be like, what, 23 24% that they were giving to the Lord. But you have to remember that Israel was really a theocracy. Uh, they were a nation. So this was kind of like taxation. They were, they were giving to the Lord. It was a law. It was mandated that they were to give this to the Lord. But that was not really free giving to the Lord. Let me read what the Bible says in the Old Testament. Proverbs 3 says this in verse 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Proverbs eleven twenty four says, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. You see, not only was Israel giving their tenth to the Lord, there was also a call for them to give offerings generously to God in other ways and to meet the needs of people in other ways, and that he calls on here and promises blessing to them. In fact, let me show you an example. If you have your Bible, go back to Exodus 25, all the way back to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25 and verse 1 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is a contribution to build the tabernacle. And he says, I want it given by those whose heart moves them. And then look over at chapter 35 and verse 5. says, take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. And then chapter 35 and verse 21 says, everyone whose heart stirred him. 
And everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. And then I want you to see the outcome by going over to Exodus chapter 36 and verse 5. And they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. I love that example. Wouldn't that be nice if we had to do that? You've got to stop giving. You've done too much. That's what he's saying. Everybody whose heart is stirred, whose spirit is willing, you're to give. And they gave so much, they had too much and had to make a proclamation. We have got to stop giving. Why did they have a heart like that? Why did they have a spirit like that? I don't know. You know, they just seemed to know that they were investing with a God who couldn't be outgiven. So let me come back to the question, how much should we give? Well, here's what the Bible says in the New Testament. In fact, let me tell you this. When you look in the New Testament, the only examples you find of tithing are the Pharisees. Luke chapter 18, you remember the Pharisee in the temple who's all arrogant and he's saying, I tithe everything I get. It's, it's the Pharisees who were bragging about the fact that they tithe their Spice cabinet. They, they took their cumin and their red pepper and they gave God a tenth of that. They were so careful about that and they're very proud about that. The only time it's mentioned in the New Testament is about the Pharisees. And it was a negative situation. And the only other time it's mentioned is in Hebrews chapter 7 where it mentions Abram and Melchizedek and he gave him a tenth. So how should we give? Listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Let each one of you do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know what? When you come to the New Testament, God says give, but he doesn't tell you how much. He says, I want you to sit down and I want you to purpose in your heart because I don't want to mandate how much you have to give. I want you to give freely. I want you to give cheerfully. I don't want you to give grudgingly because you say, I have to do this for the Lord. I want it to come from a cheerful heart. So let me give you three quick principles when you're deciding how much to give. Number one, he wants you first. 2 Corinthians 8, 5 says about the Macedonians, they first gave themselves to the Lord. The Lord never wants your money if he doesn't have you. He wants you first, and once you give yourself first, once you've given your heart to him, then your heart will be moved to give. Second principle is right out of our passage, as God has prospered you. However much you think God has blessed you physically and spiritually, in proportion to that, you are to give. You say, but Dan, that doesn't tell me how much. No, it doesn't. But I'll tell you this. 
David said in 2 Samuel 24, 24, I will not give to God what costs me nothing. And I would say to you that if Israel gave 10% based on law, I would challenge you that you should be giving more than that based on grace. You have been blessed far more than Israel under the law. And so in response to that, I would say 10% would be the minimum you would give. In the New Testament examples of giving, the widow gave 100%. In 2 Corinthians 8.3, the Macedonians gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. It says, you ever give beyond your ability to give? Philippians 4.19, Paul writes to the church at, at, at Philippi, and he thanks them for a gift because they met his need. And you know what? In meeting his need, they became needy. So he thanks them for, his, for their gift, and then he says to them, my God shall supply all your needs. Luke 19.8, Zacchaeus gave 50% of what he had to the poor and 400% to those he had defrauded. Third principle. Whenever you start to give, God starts to return it. Now, be careful here. I'm not a prosperity preacher. Quite the opposite. But you cannot deny the fact that Scripture tells us that giving is like planting seed. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says, He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. I've never sowed anything but grass. But I know that if you go out there and throw it around bountifully, you're going to end up with a better lawn. If you go out there and sparingly sprinkle it around like contractors do, you end up with a little sparse yard that comes up. He says it's the same way with giving. If you will sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. So the question is, how much do you want to reap? How much do you want to receive from the Lord in dividends? Not only in this life, but ultimately eternal dividends. Let me, let me show you one verse. Look at, look at Luke 6, 38. You need to mark this verse if you have it. Mark 6, 38. Jesus is speaking. He says, give 10%. No. He says, give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Give. How much? Whatever measure you use to give to God, God is going to use that same measure to give back to you. So you decide. You want to use a quarter cup, half cup, cup, bucket, thimble? What are you going to use to give to God? Because whatever you use, he's going to use that same measure 
to give back to you, only he's going to press it down, shake it together, run it over, and pour it into your lap. Now, if you really believe that, how would you be giving? If you really trusted that God was going to do that, how would you be giving? The principles in giving, when you ask the question, how much, is first give yourself. In other words, give him everything. Second, give according to what God has given you. And thirdly, realize that to give to God is to invest with a God who cannot be outgiven. Sixth is the persuasion. Paul says, I want you to do this at the end of verse 2 so that no collections be made when I come. Paul says, collect week by week, systematically, so that when I come, I won't have to make a big emotional appeal. I think Christians need to learn this. Some Christians sit around and they wait for somebody to get up and give a moving challenge to give to such and such, and they get, you know, spiritual goose pimples, and they decide, okay, it's time to give. I'm going to wait till somebody makes a real emotional plea to me, and then I'm going to respond and give. No, giving is to be systematic. It shouldn't be conditioned on somebody challenging you emotionally or you seeing, you know, little starving children on the TV or whatever and say, oh, I'm moved. I'm going to write a check and send it in tomorrow. It shouldn't be dependent on an emotional plea. The persuasion should be something you have thought about and prayed about and determined to do in a systematic way. Christians need to learn that. Preachers need to learn that. A lot of preachers are better motivators for money than they are preachers. I heard about one church that decided passing the plates was embarrassing, so they, you know, you dropped in some coins, it made, mon- it made noise, so they said, we, we want the pastor to figure out a better way to do it. So he decided to put some boxes like we have, those wood boxes on the wall, and, and uh, if you dropped in paper dollars or checks, it made no noise. If you dropped in a half dollar, a little bell tinkled. If you dropped in a quarter, it whistled. If you dropped in a dime, a siren went off. If you dropped in a nickel a shot fired, and if you dropped in nothing, it took your picture. (laughs) There are all sorts of gimmicks going on today. In fact, I collect them in the mail. If I get them from these uh, uh, preachers and they send me little gimmicks in the mail, I I have a file in in my cabinet, huge file of these kind of gimmicks to try to get your money, but that's not God's way. Our giving should be free, it should be generous, it should be systematic with no need for anybody to appeal to us, no need for anybody to browbeat us. It's something that ought to come out of our appreciation for the grace of God in our lives. And then seventh is the protection. Notice verse 3. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Giving should be handled wisely and carefully. Money, Paul says, should be handled by approved godly people. In fact, Paul says, if you don't approve for me to go, I won't even go. What would happen if Paul took the gift by himself to Jerusalem? He would open himself up to the possibility that somebody could accuse him of taking some of the money himself. So to protect himself from that, he wants multiple people to do it who have been approved. 
Many men who were excellent preachers and faithful pastors are out of ministry today because they were personally irresponsible with money. And we need to take every precaution in this area. That's why when we have men, and I guess women, count the, the money that's collected, it's always more than one, and it's always people of character because we have to protect ourselves in that area. So what do we learn about giving? The purpose, it's for the needs of the saints, physical and spiritual. The pattern, you're to give systematically week by week. The place, primarily through the church. The participants, everyone, and that includes you. The proportion, according to how God has prospered you and how you want God to prosper you. The persuasion, you should purpose in your heart and not wait for an emotional plea. And the protection, multiple people approved should handle the money. Let me close with one final comment. Paul calls our giving in verse 3 a gift. That's the Greek word karos. It's the word grace. You need to understand that grace is giving. Giving is grace. They're interchangeable. That's why 2 Corinthians 8, 9 rings so true. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. How do we know grace? Because Jesus was rich, and he became poor so that you might be rich. He gave you everything you have. How do we express God's grace in our lives? Best way to express it is by giving to those who have need. The best way that grace is demonstrated in a practical way in our lives is by the giving of what God has blessed us with to meet the needs of others. I'm going to have the heart song come back, and they're going to close our service with a couple songs ask us to stand and sing. And as we do, I want you to just reflect on how the Lord might have challenged you in this area. You know, there's no more more challenging area than this area of giving because we want to protect ourselves and we want to hang on. And God may be challenging you today to give more because you can't outgive God. And so if this is an area where you have failed to be accountable to the Lord, then I want you to allow him to speak to your heart this morning as we close our service. Let's stand as we sing in closing.